Hey everyone, welcome to the Mass Construction Show with today's guest, Bill Held, principal of the Cardinal Group. I'm your host, Joe Kelly, and this is a podcast about all things construction in Massachusetts and beyond. Today we're going to discuss what it takes to start your own company. We'll talk about how you can use front-end planning and prefab to drive a project and manage risk. And Bill will say often that you must, quote, operate in the capacity as an extension of the client staff, end quote. And you'll want to listen because this is how the Cardinal Group has grown from one to 35 people in five short years. Enjoy the show. Bill Held, principal of the Cardinal Group. Uh, welcome to the Worldwide Headquarters, aka my home. Um, <clears throat> thanks for coming by. Good to see you, Joe. Yeah. Uh, one of the added benefits of doing this is I get to see old friends that I uh, probably don't get to see enough. Um, obviously, we haven't published any yet, so you may not have a good sense of what the podcast is about. Um, it's about the construction industry, what people in construction would be interested in. Um, in hearing them, maybe what a, you know, what's the thought process if someone was interested to get into, into the construction business? Um, so really, how did you how did you get into the business to start? So well, it's uh, probably how a lot of people uh, uh, move through their careers. Is you know, my dad was a general contractor in St. Louis, uh, hence the name the Cardinal Group. <laughs> we we um, won't hold that against you. Yeah, no, I know. Well, I mean, <clears throat> they 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 fail to win when they come east, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so he was a general contractor for 35 plus years, and uh, I started uh, locally in St. Louis. He did small um, commercial uh, type construction projects, and and uh, really was you know had a, a vision to do larger type projects. And so I worked with a local developer uh, that did uh, uh, speculative office buildings and retail, uh, and then moved uh, with a local longtime company in St. Louis called Sphere and they were a uh, a large design build firm. And I landed in their food and beverage group, and um, uh, really very complicated uh, design build uh, type projects. Um, uh, really spent uh, several years working on a project building a chocolate plant for Hershey up in Hershey, PA, and uh, just became fascinated really with just complicated, more industrial type projects. And that's really kind of where I got my start. Yeah, that's really interesting. See, obviously, I didn't know that about you, but. Um, I recently became familiar with the company CMC Design Build. Mm -hmm. They're a they do food and beverage processing and facilities. And in chatting with them, I found out real quickly, wow, it's pretty similar to life sciences where you're talking about process pipe and like instead of clean rooms, you're having a oh, it really is. It, I mean, I um, the uh, you know we did a lot of dairy piping. Um, dairy piping is probably the predecessor to uh, clean uh, pharmaceutical piping. Mm. Um, and so uh, the, the facilities are very uh, similar in terms of um, very equipment intensive, um, a lot of utilities, both clean and you dirty, dirty utilities. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think the food and beverage industry obviously has been around for a long time and really is a predecessor to what we know as pharma biotech today. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> people in this market know farmer and biotech and it's there's probably more people that understand that than understand the complexities of food and beverage because i mean i'm imagining dairy is what stainless steel welded 
It is stainless steel welded pipe. Yeah. Uh, similar to a lot of the um, uh, even our research and development, the lab gases that we have here, mm-hmm. and, and certainly in biologics, um, uh, the type of piping systems, the clean systems we have in, in the manufacturing plants. Okay. And then you did a stint at Jacobs? I did. So I went um, uh, after uh, uh, my, my food and beverage experience, I, I wound up moving through a couple of companies. I did a long stint uh, at Jacobs as well as they and Zimmerman. And really got into, um, I did some petrochemical, uh, polymer, um, uh, specialty, ke- specialty chemicals, um, and really an array of, uh, array of projects, uh, largely industrial, uh, process and industrial, uh, and landed on a project in probably the early 90s at Eli Lilly, which is really the first pharmaceutical project that I was exposed to. And I think um, from there, I really haven't left um, that, that market space um since probably 93 94 okay yeah because i often wonder like how do you how do you get that specialty because i mean this sounds like because a project needs people and they put you on it and and then you're working on it and it wasn't anything that was a a grand plan that um that was the direction i was going to go i mean i just was like what is the next project in the queue and and uh, my name came up and i got assigned to the project and and i you know i just absolutely loved it and and then you try to make sure that you're landing on those type of projects as you get assigned when your project finishes and the next one starts, and then become a little bit of a specialist. Uh, yeah. And then, and then everyone and then, wants and, their and services, then, right? Then, yeah, yeah like, uh, your your uh, your value to the company obviously is um, is important because now you know the type of product that you're building better than than the others, and so um, so that's where I've stayed. Okay. Really, that's cool. Yeah, and. Um, <clears throat> You know, thinking that there's some grand plan in there, because I mean, I don't want to blow smoke, but like, part of my language, you know your shit when it comes to that type of stuff, and it's always <laughs> well, I made every mistake you can make. So yeah, and it's been impressive, and I'm just like, geez, like he really knows this stuff, and you know, you fell into it, and that's that's probably like a lot of people. Um, and I do want to talk a boatload of construction, but I'm also kind of fascinated with um, people who start their own businesses. Um, or take over and kind of like to me I wonder like what drives that person to like and this is kind of more big picture not necessarily what you're talking about but um, I can see starting a business and being comfortable with it but when does it get to the point where it's growing and becomes I mean I look at Consigli and now they're in DC and they're in Maine and they're in Connecticut and New York and there was such a big player in the market like what's the thought process behind saying okay you know what now I'm gonna start building in DC um, so I'm always just fascinated in general, people that start businesses, what kind of the thought process is. So you were working at Lendlease at the time? At Lendlease, right. And what was the driver to make you want to go out on your own? Well, I mean, you know, coming out. Did you out, always want to do it? Is it? Was it your dad owned a company? I guess all those to, kinds of To be honest, I mean, I, I always uh, did envision, um, and not exactly sure what the business was, likely something along the construction lines. Um, I always was interested in running my own business because not just the building part, but every part of the business, um, uh, the marketing, the financial, the operations. Um, and so I was very interested in, in business in general. Um, but I've been had a career where, I don't know, I've worked in probably uh, several countries and in upwards of 16 or 18 different states. Um, so I've, I've done a lot of work remotely, um, which doesn't really lead to starting your own business uh, in a market. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I spent basically from 2001 through 14 working for Bovis and then Lend Lease in Boston. And then 
got to understand the market. And New England is a fairly large market, and certainly for the type of business that was a bit of my specialty. Yeah, um, so it seemed to be a good alignment. And I, and I saw an opportunity uh, to really uh, bring value to clients that I didn't think the market was currently serving uh, with a team of you know, experienced people that really focused on the life science type projects. Um, and so, uh, you know, coming off of the recession and, and being in a position where my company was, uh, Lend-Lease was downsizing significantly uh, their Boston operations and moving to a development model, which really isn't, isn't my background or expertise. Um, I kind of thought if I was going to make a move, the timing was right. Um, and, uh, and so I just kind of jumped. Nice. Now, <clears throat> I'm curious, can you, for the folks that don't know can you talk about your business model because it's different from a typical general contractor? And then one further, what I found kind of interesting is you started as an OPM, but you were willing to change your business model based off what the client needed, which I think is great because some people might have an ego of, okay, well, this is the way I was going to set it up. This is what we're going to do. But you looked at it. You started one way, and then your clients had a different need, and you said, "Okay, we're gonna we're, we're not an OPM. Yes, we're still do OPM services, but right. we're not just an OPM." Well, or, back to your original comment, I, I cringe at the thought. Uh, the general contractor uh, mm-hmm. uh, comment. It's it's a it's a mentality of kind of us and them, um, and so really, what what I wanted to do was set up a business that operated as an extension of the client staff. And that we were uh, aligned with their their business drivers 100% of the time, and so we really needed to understand our client and understand their business, um, and make sure that we're managing the risk on the project that is absolutely aligned 100% of the time with what their with what their goals are, um, and that's um, certainly easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I did have an opportunity. Actually, my first purchase order was with a uh, with a client that was. Um, a due diligence assignment to build a, a biomanufacturing facility over in Ireland uh, it wasn't wasn't local, and that wasn't really my intention to uh, to get into the international marketplace. But as as, as things had it, uh, they they hired uh, myself and and allowed me to bring some persons on to remotely manage their project. Um, you know, they they uh, they're in the business of science and not capital project execution, and so. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have been chosen to manage that project for them, and two years later, and $650 million worth of construction, we were kind of wrapping things up. And then, um, really, I, my, you know, my family here locally, my contacts, uh, my relationships, and the market that I wanted to serve was New England. And so I came back after essentially a two-year stint in Ireland, and then started setting up uh, routes here locally um, to manage clients' uh, portfolio projects, but also to set up um, uh, a construction management operation um, that would, again, align with what our mission is, and that's to really operate as an extension of the client staff and, and, and build projects. Now, can you talk about the life cycle nature of it? Because lots of people probably say that they're just trying to align themselves with their client and have the client's best interest in mind. But I think you, the way you span seems like a broader um, timetable than most construction managers do. I think that helps you align with the client, right? It does. I mean, I. Um, and can you explain how you guys do it versus. 
So we're very focused on front-end planning, and front-end planning is extremely uh, critical uh, for the success of a project um, in that you make sure that the stakeholders uh, are completely aligned with, um, with what the business drivers are from the client. And front-end planning is everything from um, providing leadership, uh, design uh, management, setting up strategies, whether they're commercial or technical, in order to be successful, um, setting up a risk profile, um, understanding the cost and schedule constraints, and certainly making sure that you develop a safety platform that you're going to be uh, that you're going to operate out of successfully. Um, uh, what does that you know that needs to lead to a culture of a successful project? And, and I think everybody has a little bit different opinion of uh, of what that what that looks like. Um, uh, but you know, we, we certainly. Um, uh, very quickly, uh, since we we are very very uh, uh, line, aligned with what the client's expectations are, and part of what is the most important part of a lot of our clients' projects, quite honestly, is beginning with the end in mind. So we we need to understand their equipment, we need to understand their systems, their utilities, their processes, and we need to be designing with the end in mind. In other words, uh, building to a startup and commissioning and a successful turnover because at the end of the day i mean we, we we don't have any tools right we're a service company but we're trying to turn over an operating facility um, not just a building you know but really an operating facility which when you pull off the walls and the roof you've got a pretty complicated facility that needs to be properly commissioned and started up in order to support whether it's a manufacturing process or the science that's being performed in the building and that's really where our focus is from day one. And, and to do that properly, you need to have a, a, a very robust front-end planning process. And, we, and projects that, that go south, and unfortunately our, our business is uh, uh, oftentimes uh, um, uh, troubled with projects that uh, either have schedule uh, issues, uh, cost issues, both, typically both if they have one or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the root cause is typically traced back to a project that really wasn't set up properly. And once the project goes off the track, um, very few of them come back, um, come back on their own and finish strong. And so, so we, we believe that we spend an uh, intensive amount of time making sure that from a front-end planning standpoint, we've put the project together properly. And how about your interaction with the design team? Like how much are you driving... Yeah, so based off your experience, you know. So I, I come from a um, EPCM or design build background. I have uh, several colleagues that do as well. So we certainly understand the design process and are sensitive to um, uh, those design considerations that uh, um, that are required long before we're able to really put a shovel in the ground. So I think um, the fact that we understand it, um, we're able to set up strategies that will help make the designers more successful as well, especially when we move into an IPD type arena or IPD-ish or whatever you want to call it, lean and collaborative approach to delivering projects. Um, you need to understand the design and how far to take it and, and where the strengths and weaknesses are of the market if, in fact, you're going to take the design and move it into uh, early stages of coordination. Um, so we try to separate the design and, into engineering and coordination and make sure that the design firms have completed the engineering and that they're comfortable with the product they're moving to the marketplace from a subcontractor coordination standpoint and, and not duplicate uh, those resources. 
Can you give an example of <clears throat> the kind of input you might give on the design side? Because we're talking about conceptually right now, how you handle it, but like just so for people who might not be grasping. Right. And so, so um, look, I think, um, I, I do think our, our market out here in New England is catching up a little bit with, uh, with the rest of the country or the world um, in terms of a, a leaner approach to, uh, to building. But what, really what we're talking about is how do we take the design deliverables and move them into a, uh, into a marketplace that we can maximize prefabrication um, that we can minimize the amount of hot work that's done on site, the more work mm -hmm. that we can do uh, in, a, um, in an off-site uh, facility, uh, eliminates labor hours on site, which typically are riskier, uh, oftentimes in the elements, um, oftentimes working at height. Um, so how do we minimize those, those key production issues that um, are influenced by safety and equipment, uh, et cetera, trade stacking, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So... You know how do we how do we um, how do we fill shafts with MEP systems and make sure all the connections are made at, at height and not put people in confined spaces mm -hmm. um, on ladders. Uh, obviously, we you know most of the firms now are, are you know moving away from ladders and have a, a ladder by exception policy, last, yeah. And, yeah, et cetera. Um, so those are just a lot of the strategies I think you you need to consider. And if you don't consider those early in design, and we're talking you know, at the 20% level, 25% level, then the design is going to progress to the point that you're unable to make um, smart construction decisions from a, from really from a, from an assembly standpoint. Yeah. I mean, that seems so simple, but when you just... It does seem simple, but it's not. <clears throat> when you said it though, I'm thinking, yeah, design it so you have a shaft that whether it's a welded pipe or a... Uh, duck connection with the whatever that band of tape they put on it and screw it do it right at you know bench height make the connection no one's leaning over a hole you could put airplane cable around it do your job no ladder no lift no fall hazard um yeah that seems so i mean take large ductwork sections of uh, uh supply and return and build them three stories at a time uh, and then drop them into the shaft yeah. and connect them and so ductwork's really not uh, hasn't typically been designed to be supported by a crane off of a flatbed and drowned mm -hmm. through the roof of a building. So there's a lot of um, other engineering and, and really means and methods from a subcontractor standpoint to figure out how can I pick the ductwork and, uh, you know, and still maintain the integrity of the system and do you insulate it now or do you do it later? And so there's, it's, it does become uh, pretty complicated, but, but again, not anything that, um, uh, a requisite amount of front-end planning can't can help resolve. Yeah. 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 Um, <clears throat> let's talk a little about, um, we were having a conversation one day and you were talking a lot about uh, the process engineers. And, you know, I just wasn't grasping, you know, I know the mechanical engineer and structural engineer and, you know, the soils guy or Haley and Aldrich or geotech or something. Um, and... As you were kind of explaining what they they did, I had somewhat of an aha moment, which is when you're doing manufacturing, like if, if you build any other type of business, a uh, B-use group or residential, you're building the structure that somebody lives in, right, or works in, and you're just really providing the structure. Yeah, there might be some built-in furniture or equipment in the sense of like a bench or something like that. Mm -hmm. But on the 
on the manufacturing side, you are essentially building a piece of equipment inside of a building, right? So you almost have two buildings going on. You have the structure, and then you have the the line that produces the equipment and all has to work together and, and so be in, clean. Like, how do you how do you work both of those things at the same time? And how yeah, are they? So um, you know, <clears throat> as um, as schedules became more critical, and and obviously cost is. Uh, has a has a huge component of a timeline function with it, right? And the shorter that you're able to deliver a project, the less it's going to cost um, for a lot of reasons. Um, so in the, um, what I would call the old days is we would um, stick build plants and we would, we would buy the equipment, um, typically through the subcontractor. Uh, and so that therein is the problem number one is that by the time that you competitively bid and bring on your MEP firms and then they go out and they procure the equipment and they go through that process, um, you're probably three or four months down the road as opposed to when is that equipment ready to be procured? And from an engineering standpoint, it's somewhere in the, the 40%, 50% design. The equipment's been sized. Uh, it's not going to change. The general arrangements are pretty well locked down. Uh, and then it becomes really a, a, a heavy construction document function to put the rest of the job together. So that's the time to really go out and buy the equipment. Oftentimes, we're able to buy the equipment uh, go through the shop drawing review and approval process, validate the design to make sure that it's the right size and it fits in the orientation, location, etc. And then we're not designing to black boxes anymore so that we can design um, to an actual piece of equipment that is was competitively procured um, through the design build process. Um, long before you have drawings that are ready to bring an MEP uh, subcontractor on board. And so then we, we went from that process to trying to uh, create skids of the equipment and ancillary pumps and, and piping and filters, et cetera, and build those offsite. And again, move more hours offsite, build them in, in remote fabrication shops domestically. They're all over the country. Um, and then bring the skid in. So you maybe you've reduced uh, on a certain process system, another 10 to 15% of the labor hours on site because you've done it in a warehouse. And then we, we took skids and turned them into super skids. So now where you may have three or four or five vessels that are hung in a platform that's a two-story platform with all of the, the cabling, the wiring, the automation, uh, all of the interconnect and piping, we've gone to really fabricating those super skids and taking the super skids uh, apart in large sections while the building is under construction and then bringing the super skids into the plant. So, so the process uh, has, really, has really changed. And, and now, obviously, um, it's gone so far as to bring modules and, and build the entire module um, and, and put plants together that have 60 or 70 or 80 modules. And now you're just connecting modules together to make the entire facility. And how far that goes, I think, remains to be seen. It does... Um, eliminate a little bit of um, uh, personalization by the client, uh, if you will. Um, but I, I do think it's it's the way of the industry as well. How do you get around multiple trades? Say if you have multiple trades that need to work on that skid, is it a central location? If there's like an iron it is a, it a catwalk. A and, okay. Absolutely. It's a, it's a central <clears throat> location where you bring in all those trades uh, into that fabrication shop. So you're just leasing space and... Well, there are, there are firms that specialize in, in modules and super skids that have um, those in-house resources, uh, all of the disciplines, and other firms may have, you know, two-thirds of the discipline, and then we'll subcontract 
uh, the other disciplines to come into their shop uh-huh. and do that work. So, um, so it's a specialty in to itself. It is a specialty <clears throat> into itself. Yeah. Can you explain what a process engineer does generally, just for the folks that, or maybe <laughs> if you can put it in? Uh... Well, I mean, it's um, you know, it's it's really an engineer, no different, I guess, than any other discipline, whether it's a. Uh, uh, an HVAC engineer where you're, you know, uh, doing airflow uh, diagrams and sizing the ductwork and the equipment. Um, you're just dealing with the process, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, with the fluids, et cetera, in terms of uh, the sizing of the pipe and the flows um, that uh, work with the client's process, whether, you know, regardless of what that process is. What would you say, um, <clears throat> and this is a very fair on, on the spot question to ask you, very unfair, I should say, um, what percentage of the, is the um, equipment package with all the skids and everything of the project? On a, on a, on a process it, facility? It, yeah. I mean, it's got to be yeah, over 60%, right? No, I mean, I think just the equipment cost uh, direct is probably in the, in the 20% range, 2025. And then building out the skid and everything, if you um, factor all that? And... Yeah, that would, I mean, I, I think the... Uh, w- the, you know the, the PNIDs will define the boundaries of where that skid is. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether it's a super skid or just a normal skidded piece of equipment, um, you know I think the cost of that is in the twenty to twenty five percent range, and then the, the building obviously represents the rest. Okay. <clears throat> let's, let's talk a little about growth. Um, you're just north of four years into this. Uh, we right. just uh, started our fifth year fifth in April of this year. Okay. Right. Um, it was quick. I, yeah, it was you when we first started <laughs> it goes talking, fast. right? And now, what you're up around? Yeah, we're 20, in the mid thirties. Mid thirties in terms of headcount, and um, uh, you know, it's um, I kind of feels um, slow and controlled, and and sometimes it it uh, it's a little bit quicker than that. But um, you know, we've been able to maintain a uh, a, a decent backlog that has has continually required the the recruitment of of key personnel uh, to execute the work. And it's been, um, you know, it's been pretty consistent. We'll, we'll start a major assignment and, and probably, uh, um, you know, be in a heavy recruitment period and bring on a, another key, uh, key, key person, you know, one or two or three or whatever that might look like. And, um, and then another qu- next quarter or the next quarter where, we're, you know, it's a continual, continual process. Yeah. Now, are you hiring to prepare for the growth or are well, you... Getting more projects and then needing to um, needing to bring the personnel on to kind of a del- uh, obviously it's a delicate balance of um, having the right personnel for the type of projects uh, that are that are in the hopper, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're constantly um, interviewing candidates and talking to people in the market uh, that we think would be a good fit, and then we um, and then from a timing standpoint, um, you know we're. Uh, just like everybody else, uh, you know, uh, hopefully you, you, you know, you align the, the personnel uh, uh, onboarding process with, uh, with the project flow. And it helps to have um, people that are uh, well-versed in multiple parts of our business that, mm-hmm. that have experience on the front end, um, that have the startup and, and turnover experience on the back end, that have, that have a strong uh, closing responsibility in, somewhere in their career. Um, you know, we uh, we we really have a, a pretty specialized equipment and subcontract procurement process, 
Um, so without centralized purchasing, our project teams uh, buy out the projects. So we, we need to make sure we have people with those, those relevant skills. When you say specialized procurement, mean like that they have um, a tremendous amount of knowledge about the type of equipment, or is it the method of procurement? Like what's what's well, specialized? I, I think both. Of, I mean, I think um, from an equipment standpoint, whether it's utility or process, you need to be fairly familiar with the equipment that you that you're procuring, um, and uh, and then with uh, with the rest of you know the, for purchase orders and with subcontracts, it's understanding. Um, uh, of the procurement of, of major construction packages. Okay. So uh, let's go back to, uh, I mean, I'm, <clears throat> this is very technical, isn't it? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it, it's interesting. So I, uh, I'm trying to just pull out, um, certain nuggets in my ignorance in this space makes the asking the, diff- the question a little difficult. Um, so and actually, even let's go all the way back. So you started as an OPM, right? What were the conversations that were happening that made you say, "Okay, we really need to become a construction manager"? Well, the the, uh, the thought process and um, really in in the at the beginning when I started the firm uh, was that we would we would there would be two phases. You know, initially we would uh, be represent clients on on their capital. Um, on their capital projects, um, but but you know we really have a uh, a team of, of very seasoned and experienced builders, and uh, for projects that um, and, and not necessarily a scale, not necessarily large or small, but for projects that um, were pretty integral to the client's operations, which typically you get into uh, R and D and manufacturing renovations uh, in an operating facility where you. You know, it, it kind of ramps up the skill set of people that really understand the client's business, their equipment, their operations. You work with multiple user groups. You're sensitive to all of those different user groups and what their needs are from a facility standpoint and um, from a manufacturing standpoint, from an engineering standpoint. And I thought that uh, uh, a, a specialized construction team uh, that was uh, engaged with the client's facility, that got to learn their facility, uh, would be a much better solution than just um, essentially, you know, one-off, one-off construction assignments mm. uh, to where you could you could really, um, you know, really be an extension of their staff. Yeah, because I mean, well, what's interesting is as an OPM, you're really just an extension of them, kind of overseeing, and then. Yeah, so I think an OPM. There's a there's a, when I look at the value chain of what an OPM does, I think their um, importance uh, if the client doesn't have that type of experience in house is to really properly set up the job. So front end planning is extremely important, uh, and then it becomes a bit of arm's length, right? So you're you're in more of a a risk management and an audit kind of a phase, whether it's with managing the cost, managing the schedule, and then looking at the, at the project either on a biweekly or monthly basis and doing risk assessments. And so, uh, and then again, I think you get close, you, you become involved if there's issues um, in terms of troubleshooting or being helping, uh, helping with solutions if there's uh, problems along the way. And then of course, uh, if it's been set up properly and executed, it's it's important that you have a clean closeout um, in terms of the engineering turnover packages and the startup and the commissioning process. So um, I think uh, you know an OPM that um, and and I don't 
again, uh, not to be, um, uh, you need to have, once you bring the right shareholders together uh, and you have a good front end planning process, um, I think you've done what you were hard to do and that's set the job up for success. And then I think you step back and you let, you let the people that you've empowered to build the job, build it. Yep. Agreed. You know? And so, um, so I think, uh, look, and that's, um, that's a level of experience that you're going to bring to the table that, that probably starts at 20 years plus, Mm -hmm. um, with some support help. Um, and so that, that is a model that is, um, uh, you know, I think works well on larger or more capital or complicated type projects. Um, but there's a whole other part of our business and, in, in managing the construction of complicated projects uh, that I don't think the market is, is necessarily being served very well because I, 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 there just aren't, um, I think, a lot of uh, firms that, that are able to um, successfully uh, execute those type of projects. Hmm. Hmm. Now, when you're talking about, or and I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth here, like... Uh, I see that you guys get involved in a longer, like you're in earlier and you're there longer than a typical construction manager. You know, part of it is that specialized procurement. Um, when are you getting the call from the owner? Is it sometimes, is it before they've hired well, an we, architect or a designer? We've, sometimes. Obviously, it's probably both, but... I mean, the earlier the better, and I think um, uh, most people would like to be involved earlier. Um, so we often get calls prior to the uh, selection of the design firm, um, and and uh, support our clients in that selection process, um, whether it's writing the RFP and and uh, and reviewing those proposals and interviewing the teams and making rec- making recommendations. Um, and and sometimes we don't, and sometimes the uh, the, the client has a, has a concept and and wants a concept package at you know, 15 or 20% is, uh, is complete, then the client feels comfortable that now is probably the time to, to bolt on a construction management firm with the design firm. And, and a lot of clients see that as being the, the, the most effective earliest starting point uh, to build that team. And, and so to me, that's probably as late as we want, we want to get brought on. Mm-hmm. If, we, if we're looking at a project where they're well into CDs, um, and, this, and the job is close to going on the street, um, our ability to influence, um, you know, a, a, a really super positive outcome is, is less. Okay. Um, and then on the back end, obviously you guys have commissioning expertise that not everybody has. Yeah, we, we don't, I mean, we don't really uh, commission um, projects in-house, but we, we manage that process, mm-hmm. um, the startup process, the commissioning, the turnover, and of course the manufacturing goes through a qualification process, which we don't, you know, we don't really provide qualification services. Um, but uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a strong connection to a, um, a very uh, uh, rigid turnover process that yields to successful closeout of a project. Okay. Um, you brought it up, so I'll bring it up. All right. Um, IPD. Integrated project, integrated project delivery. Um, for the folks that don't know, conceptually, so you've worked on a particular project. I want to ask you how that went. Um, so we, yeah, we we did a a very large R and D facility. And what is it and, first and, of all? And I and so I call it so IPD integrated project delivery is that you really bring in um, all the stakeholders in the project and they 
they basically uh, put their their fee at risk, and you you know you you share in the the benefits or the rewards of a well-run project. Mm-hmm. Um, maximizes your fee, allows for a leaner project, more collaborative delivers. A, you know, in 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 theory, it delivers a better facility uh, to the client. Okay. Um, and I and I certainly believe in it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the client has to be uh, out in front and um, open to that type of delivery method. And I think our industry will only go as far as clients that are open to delivering work in that manner. Yep. Um, you, you, it's very difficult to sell or market uh, that delivery method if, if the client isn't a willing participant. Yeah, I almost think and they have to be the driver. I do too. Yeah. And, and oftentimes, you know, the clients are the driver of, of the type of commercial arrangements that exist uh, between ourselves and, and, uh, and the end user. Yeah. So I think Brown historically, Brown University historically has been a big proponent of it, have, has done it quite a bit. Um, I don't know. I think some people have moved on. I don't know if they continue to, you know, use that mm-hmm. arrangement. But I mean, uh, I sat in on a presentation and just to see like reduction in RFIs, um, you know, number of sketches, all that. I mean, just everything was just drastically reduced. Um, for the people that don't know what it is, just to let's let's simplify it a bit, which is um, there's an agreed upon price. If the project does well, everybody shares in that. Right? So, the, so, so the real challenge is bringing your trade partners on early enough in the process uh, that you can tap into their intellectual capacity. I mean, that's really what you're trying to do. You're trying to bring in everybody into the process early enough that you can utilize their skills and their market knowledge in terms of putting the project together. Um, uh, and, and the real hang-up, uh, if you will, is how do you do that on a competitive basis when you don't have documents that have been uh, you know, issued for construction or issued for bid or at 80 or 90%. And so there are a lot of different ways to pull that together. Um, so you set up basically incentive-based agreements that are consistent across all of the players. Um, including the uh, the design firm as well. Um, and so I would say that, you know, at, at 40 or 50 percent, and, and certainly it's been done earlier from day one, but at 40 or 50 percent, you've brought in the MEP firms, largely MEP. Um, and you, you could extend that to structural or, uh, or large exterior cladding jobs, but it's largely, uh, you know, less of the commodity trades and, and more of um, the, um, the engineered trades. Uh, is where I've seen it used and, and be successful. Okay. And I think the commercial arrangement is, is different depending on the appetite of the client to assume some of, some of the risk mm-hmm. um, and how that risk is spread amongst the shareholders. Um, yeah. So for people that are unfamiliar, you know, it's... If the project as a whole makes less, you make less as an individual... That's correct. Subcontract. That's correct. So the theory behind it is that, um, <clears throat> to simplify it, if, if the drywaller wants to, cl- if the drywaller was part of the equation, if the drywaller was green-lighted to close up, but the electrician hadn't completed, the drywall, historically, the drywaller would have boarded the thing and said, that's the electrician's problem. But 
the drywaller has a stake in the whole project. So he's not going to bury the electrician because if it costs the electrician more to do the work, that comes out of the whole pie, which the drywaller loses a cut from, right? Correct. And, yeah. I, and I, I, absolutely. I mean, in that, in that example, um, there's a bit of self-policing uh, going on. And in reality, I mean, the trades want to work with the trades that they think are, are the best trades in the, in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they kind of, they want to be in a position where they, they can hold each other accountable. And, and in theory, the contract does that in terms yeah. of the arrangement that's been agreed upon by the parties. Okay. Now, did you find contractors, subcontractors that were just straight up unwilling to enter into that arrangement? Said, well, set. so the, uh, no, because you really can't bring those contractors into the mix. So you, you need to have a, uh, a discussion about um, what your approach is to the job, what your contracting methodology is going to look like, what the expectations are. And uh, there's certainly some firms that aren't interested in doing business that way. I mean, it's, uh, it's probably not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's the case, then it's a firm that you can't bring into the mix. So if someone being five years off of starting yourself, um, if someone is sitting there, they're a PM working for Turner or Bond or whoever, and they're kind of maybe getting a niche themselves saying, you know what, I'd, I'd like to do this. What would they need? What would they need to know? Like what? What did you? What they did wanted you to just start with? their own business. Yeah, let's say they want. And <laughs> yeah, obviously they're going to do a lot of research themselves. But all right, you're laughing terribly. Did five you just years. Say in, don't do it. Five, yeah. five uh, years into the business, I didn't know much much about anything. Yeah. Well, no, this is important, right? Because yeah. here, I just started myself, right? I am three or four months. You're into a brave this, man, Joe Kelly, right? And like the stuff I had to learn just on the insurance side and with attorneys and I actually copyrights and like, you know. That people, there was, I guarantee there are people out here that just want to know that. They've thought about it a lot, and it, 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 it matters, right? Yeah, so that, I mean, that part of the business is, uh, is the grind because it's not putting work in place, and it's mm-hmm. not finding clients and hiring Absolutely. people and, and uh, delivering either. great projects and having celebrations at the end. Um, but it is an, an extremely important part of the backbone of the business, and actually I, I enjoyed that process and going through that process, and as aggravating as it is, um, you know, I kind of, in, in our business, you learn something every day. And, uh, and, and that was a, a part of the business that working for uh, very large multinational corporations, um, things were, things were kind of teed up, but you didn't really get involved in the inner workings of how to pull it all together. How it got to that point, yes, right? <laughs> yes. And, and, uh, so I, I found it incredibly fascinating. That's a huge part of business, yeah. um, you know, would I want to start all over again and, and start from scratch? Probably not. <laughs> but it's the best way to learn, right? Yeah. Is, I mean, to, uh, is to do it yourself. And, you, you know, and of course, depending on um, what your financial stake is, you know, you, there's only so many consultants you can hire before you just really need to do it the way you want to do it and mm-hmm. put it together. And uh, so you lean on, you know, you lean on, on consultants when you need to. But, um, you know, I think the best way is just to roll up your sleeves and dive in and go through the process you're buying out insurance and you're you're you know you're finding uh, great accounting resources and you're deciding on software and you do it just like you would buy out a job you you know you uh, you, you investigate the market you put a bid tab together and you decide you know which direction you're going to go and then and then you just stay the course hmm. did you find anybody helpful 
Um, I did. I mean, I, there are some, uh, I, I had some colleagues in, in, the, in the industry that were extremely helpful, um, that have their own businesses that, uh, um, that you can lean on. And, and you know, in our, it's a pretty small market mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And there are a lot of people out there that are, that are willing to help you, that want you to be successful. Um, and they know what they went through to build a business. And, and there's, I've had some people that are, you know, more than willing to help me and take my calls any time of the day or night to, when I was stuck. Yeah. Now, how about like, so insurance, having just gone through it, um, <laughs> what would people need to know if you, like, what do you, what well, do you, I mean, there's insurance need? being a client, you know, representative and, and, you know, do I need professional liability and will I be brought into a potential claim is, uh, issue by a third party? Um, uh, and the answer is yes, yes, yeah. and yes. And, and, and then there's, when you uh, when you're you're now moving into construction management, whether it's an agency agreement or at risk, um, you know that kicks in a whole different level of protection uh, that you need, and, and and not only just the coverages but the amounts. Um, so it's really it kind of depends on the the work product and what your revenue looks like and the type of work that you're doing. But um, it it uh, it's a huge part of our business in terms of the risk profile to make sure that you uh, that you're properly protected. Absolutely. So, you know, on my end, I end up, I got Arizona emissions because I'm consulting, right? Um, general liability, just in case I do teaching and stuff like that and someone trips over a court or whatever. Um, as a GC, you said you got professional? We have everything except longshoremen's and I'll get that if I'm working on or near the water. Okay. Um, but we basically have everything, and then and then any bolt-on that I need, um, and and we're just recently, uh, you know, um, in the process or procured uh, cybersecurity, um, you know, and we work a lot of times. We work when you're working with a client, they'll assign you their laptops, so that you can um, communicate with their teams and obviously get through their firewalls, mm-hmm. et cetera, um, just for distribution of information and meetings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so the security of, you know, all the security is incredibly important, especially for the type of clients that we're working with. Mm. So, um, yeah, so we, we probably have a little bit of everything. And then did you go to an outside firm for an attorney? I did. I, I, uh, um, I've hired um, uh, outside for attorney. I've gone through, uh, which is um, my first attorney is still my attorney. Okay. Someone that I have a tremendous amount of respect for, Trust, uh, Stan obviously. Martin. Yeah, and okay, yeah, I know Stan. Yeah, he's Stan's a great. You know, thirty-five plus year industry veteran, and uh, yeah, uh, you know, give a plug for Stan. Was, okay. His uh, his firm is Common Sense Construction Law, and he's uh, he's the best of the best. Yeah, he's uh, he's great to work with. Interesting. Um, I need to give Stan a call, not for attorney business, but for um, there's a new. Law potentially making its way through the um, system right now that would not—it's the wage theft law. I don't know if you've heard about it. Or mm, not. I haven't. No. So um, it basically says that if you're the prime general contractor, if you have even a sub sub who fails to pay their employees, I think it's for—and I'm going to be wrong here—but even three years down the line, if they come back and said I was never paid. <clears throat> You, you are responsible, hmm. right? Um, and rightfully so, general contractors are saying, 
listen, there's got to be some limit here. And if I don't get some type of notice, I've paid them for right, their work. Right, where do I draw the line? Exactly. Right? Like, okay, I, I paid them for their work. If they didn't pay their employees, why is that my fault? Right? Right. Um, and there's a lot of other problems with it. Um, so I saw Stan had recently written something on Maryland has a simple, similar law that went into place. So I wanted to reach out to Stan to see if he'd write something for my site because okay. general contractors should really know yeah. that that's an issue um agc has been working on it that's right. how i became aware of it um but yeah it's it's not good for contractors by interesting. any means no i haven't heard of it uh, interesting and yeah no stan is great um so you had stan you just use a broker to kind of really walk you through the insurance process or yeah I've, I've uh i've kind of cycled through a few brokers till I, I found uh, somebody that's very comfortable with that I thought really understood our business and specialized in construction, a large, large firm that really knows um, the construction market. Yeah. Um, and you really need to, you have to find the specialists that, that deal in, in your particular field. I mean, every, all insurance firms have certain specialties uh, and you really, because you lean on that person a lot, especially as you're in the process of negotiating contracts. Mm-hmm. So in the risk management standpoint of, uh, you know, the legal and the insurance implications in, in every prime that you negotiate, you need to protect yourself. How about like bonding capacity? Well, um, I haven't been uh, requested to provide a bond. Mm-hmm. Um, so I haven't gone down that road to date. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not typical. It's not a typical requirement of a, of a life science client is to bond their projects. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, um, I'm just trying we to certainly, that. depending on the contract that we sign from a, uh, um, you know, from a GMP standpoint for those type of contracts, you know, we certainly have uh, our bonding requirements for subcontractors. Now, how about just software systems? Software. I'm sure it was. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't clean, right? I mean, well, I mean, you... so the good news is, right? So um, the um, the legacy systems that most of the large companies that that I have worked for were were semi-customized in-house systems. And so most of those, uh, whether it was from an accounting standpoint, project management, document control, um, et cetera, uh, really were were off limits to us. Um, You really, you know, the systems today that have been developed, uh, say, in the last decade on a mobile platform, um, with a pricing structure that's consistent with the size of the company and the number of users, um, have gotten very competitive, mm-hmm. and so uh, so we um, you know we landed on our project management software. We landed on Procore, mm-hmm. uh, which we're very happy with. Um, yeah. It's it's it doesn't do everything, but it's a it's a pretty solid project management software. Uh, from a from an accounting standpoint, we moved to uh, uh, Dexter and Cheney, which is a Spectrum product um, that we're very happy with that we've implemented. I don't know about a year and a half ago. Okay, and then um, all of the AutoCAD products. Um, Navisworks managing the AutoCAD suite of, um, uh, of tools and Bluebeam and yeah, I mean, you name it. Yeah. Um, uh, we use P6 for scheduling. We have Microsoft projects. So we, you know, depending on the size of the project and the complexity and whether it's resource loaded, et cetera, we, we jump back between both and have multiple licenses. Um, okay. So we, you know, from a technology standpoint, you know, you have to, you have to use the tools that are available. Yeah. Um, I am. Um... There was, a, there was a company, Sterling Construction. I think Andy started out about two years ago. But, you know, one thing I think he really did right was just the systems he was putting in place. You know, from day one, you know, 
it was Procore, it was Sage. He he was all about building good systems <laughs> to use and spend the time to customize them. And he was thinking about that before he was thinking about what, what work he was going to get. And I think that's made him really successful in his growth. Is, is yeah, I think that's a, that's a good move. You really need to do that in parallel. You can't let um, a big part of your... You can't let a big part of your um, uh, execution lag because you don't have the systems in place in terms of how you do your business. Yeah, I mean, I so I'm consulting, so I can get away with having an Excel spreadsheet yeah. versus whether I buy right. FreshBooks, a QuickBook. Uh, well, you know, over a few months, I'll just put it in an Excel spreadsheet. Like, right. You don't have that luxury, right? No, I mean, you really don't. Yeah, jo- Jobs move too fast and are too complicated not to be able to manage the data. It has to be at your fingertips. And it has to be real time, and you have to share it with your teams and your clients and your shareholders. Um, so, yeah, let's talk just a tiny bit because um, I got all uh, excited to some degree when I heard your mindset on it. Because um, culture, like so, culture at Cardinal Group, uh, the conversation we were having was around. You know, uh, it was just mind-boggling to me how often. Um, you know, managers are concerned about where a person is doing their job or what time they're doing their job. Like, from a cultural perspective, what's it like at Cardinal Group? What's your thought on how, how people work? Obviously, there's superintendents that need to be there, right? You know, that's not an option. Um, superintendents have a hard time working from home. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's a fact, right? Um, but culture, I mean, culture is, uh, is, is incredibly important. Um, you know, we you know, we we want to deliver excellence on everything uh, and every assignment that we have. Um, we want to we want to understand the client's business and and like I've said, and I, you know, I, I sound like a broken record, but but operate in the capacity as an extension of the client, and to to know what that means, you need to understand your client, and you need to have a certain amount of FaceTime and interaction um, and communication. Um, with multiple levels uh, within their organization, but we, you know, we we uh, we want to be open and transparent, uh, and at and at the end of the day, you have to you want to build a, a trust that the and and that the client can count on you to do what you say you're going to do. So you have to be accountable. Um, uh, none of those things necessarily dictate what your work environment looks like or where you work from. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we, you know, with the different, with multiple types of projects, north and west and south of the city, and and in other states, and and initially uh, international. <laughs> yeah. Um, who who starts their first job international? I'm yeah, not quite sure. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure either. I still, uh, I still wonder how we uh, how we pulled that off. But um, uh, so the culture is, is is not really about about where you sit, but really how you connect with people and. Um, how you operate within your organization, and uh, and you know we, we, we try to be flexible. Um, we try to make sure that um, the people are uh, that we offer not only an environment but the technology and the tools and the systems that uh, make people success that allow people to be successful. Um, mm. You know, and it's it uh, um, you know if you're working on um, you know writing contracts and. Or putting together proposals, or working on different parts of the business. I mean, you don't necessarily need need to jump into an hour commute each way uh, to be successful. Yeah. Um, 
uh, we, you know, we, we were pretty intensive with project controls. Um, uh, so a lot of that, that, that type of work can be done remotely as well. Mm. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to close this thing up, but, um, I'll, I'm going to give you a plug, even though you don't. Um, <laughs> Great, take if, it. If somebody is interested, so I, I don't know if I mentioned this. We obviously we we've communicated, and I set up on the front that it's nice having friends. Um, I've worked for Bill in the past, um, and for anyone that is interested, I would I would tell them in a heartbeat to go work for you. Um, I think on a number of fronts, just like you know that conversation we were just having about just. To you, it was always, all right, well, what makes sense? Essentially, I, I don't care about what the fucking rule is. Like, what, you know, what makes sense, whether what makes sense for the client or what makes sense for you or what's most productive is just the way you approach things, which I really appreciate. And then on another note, um, and hopefully it came through in this conversation, but um, you're your knowledge base is so great that working for you, I always felt like, man, I just always learned something. And just the way you're thinking about it, you know, I was operating as a super, you know, and you're walking around saying, you know, we haven't built out enough money this month. And I'm like, and, and, and at first, you know, I, <laughs> I know I learned cash flow curves in school and stuff like that. And I'm like, why is this guy complaining that we haven't paid the subs enough money? That's, this is great. We have more, uh, you know, we, we haven't shelled out cash. That's good. And he's like, no, you dummy. You know, like we need to, we got to spend that money, you know, for uh, our monthly burn to make sure we're on, on we schedule. Gotta put, we got to put work in place. Yeah, and knowing that that cash is reflective of your schedule, right? Right. You know, um, so uh, you know, if if folks are interested, um, I've been pushing Bill to be a little more active on LinkedIn. Maybe connect with him on LinkedIn, and that will get him over the hump. Um, check out what Cardinal du- Group is doing. They do some pretty cool projects. I've walked a few myself. Um, they even meeting up with uh, Bob Kelly was great, and oh yeah, right, uh, right. You've got some good people, Tony. Uh, so if folks are interested, uh, Cardinal Group would be uh, a great place. And uh, Bill, thanks for coming by. Joe, appreciate it. Thank uh, you. Hey everyone, can't thank you enough for listening to the show. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you loved what you heard. Um, if you did, if you wouldn't mind heading over to SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever it is that you listen and give us a rating. It would help us to get heard, which would be huge. Keep this thing going. Um, If you want to get more involved, head over to massconstruction.org. You can see what we do there. You can also connect with us on LinkedIn, Instagram, or Facebook, all from that page, whatever your medium is that you prefer. Uh, And last thing I got to say is thank you, thank you, thank you.